Luke chapter 20, verse 41. But Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. As we stand, let's pray. Lord Jesus, speak to our hearts now and change us by your Spirit for your glory. Amen. Please have a seat. It's great to be with you again for a second week in a row. This morning we're in Luke 20, verses 41 to 47 on page 880 of the Bibles. Short passage. Some of you are hoping for a short sermon. Well, be aware. Beware the preacher who was just a few verses to try and explain, I say. And we're looking at these verses under the heading, Beware the Scribes. The scribes being the teachers of the law, and so supposedly of God's word and ways in Jesus' day. Yet they got it wrong in so many ways. Yes, beware those who claim to be Bible teachers, even those who've been approved by the wider church, such as the Church of England, when what they teach and do doesn't agree with God's Word. Always check what they and we at St. Joseph's teach and do against Scripture. So please do have that reading from Luke open in front of you. And diving straight into this passage, my first point is that the Psalms witness to Jesus Christ being God. How do you answer people's questions about Jesus and the Christian faith? Perhaps especially if they're hostile and looking to catch you out. Do you do so patiently, as Jesus did, or frustratedly? And do you have a question for them, as Jesus did, to test and even expose their often ill-informed and sometimes rather arrogant thinking? I once took a course at Newcastle Uni in Biblical Studies with a new lecturer. Sadly, it should have been called Unbiblical Studies. He was a well-prepared tutor who considered himself to be an expert in the Bible, but tragically, he was arrogant and wrong, rather like the scribes. A few years earlier, he'd been about to go overseas as a missionary when he suddenly turned his back on God and declared himself an atheist. In his lectures, he would try to rip the Bible apart and argue that Jesus wasn't God, 
but rather a failure. He would ask you lots of questions to try and dismantle your faith and trip you up. I decided at the ripe old age of 18 to prove him wrong. I wrote essays on the historical Jesus. I tried to argue from the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, rather pathetically trying to impress him. But I was trying to patiently answer this lecturer's questions. And then I decided to go and see him and humbly ask him some questions because he was upsetting the faith of my friends. And that turned out to be quite revealing. His response was far softer, saying that he wished he could believe that Jesus is the Messiah and say that he's my Lord and my God. Asking searching questions of those hostile to your faith can be effective, which is exactly what Jesus does here in Luke 20. So please just don't take it from me, but rather from Jesus himself, who does it perfectly. Look at Jesus' example, verses 41 to 44. After very patiently replying to his enemies' attacks, the Lord Jesus asked them, the scribes, a question. He asked them to explain verse 1 of Psalm 110, where King David speaks of the Messiah, the son of David, as his Lord. But the teachers of the law, the scribes, were unable to answer Jesus' question. Sadly, as with some church leaders today, they didn't see the great truth that the Messiah was to be fully God as well as fully man. And that while as a man he was David's son or of David's line as we sing at Christmas, as God, he was to be David's Lord. Their ignorance of Scripture was exposed for everyone to see. The scribes made themselves out to be the teachers who had the key of knowledge. Yet they were shown to be people who couldn't even explain their own scriptures. Out of all the shortcomings that Jesus' enemies had, none was as humiliating as this one. Nothing so kills a person's pride as to have their ignorance on the subject they consider themselves to be an expert shown in public. Isn't that true? It's what people standing to be MPs at the moment most fear, isn't it? To be exposed and to be humiliated in public. But if human beings are to have peace with God, know his love and the riches of his grace for eternity and so escape the just judgment of hell, which we'll come to later on, then we're to humble ourselves, put our trust in Christ and submit to him as our Lord and God. Just as some of the scribes did later on following Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Is there someone here 
who needs to do just that, perhaps for the first time today? That's a direct question which Jesus, through his word, is asking you today. How will you respond? You see, it would be arrogant of us, even if we are trusting in Christ, to think that Jesus isn't lovingly asking questions of us, lovingly pointing things out in our lives that need to change or be viewed differently. Perhaps we have many questions for Him and don't understand some things, such as, why is it so crucial that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Well, the answer to that is, if He's not, then He couldn't rescue us from our sin. And He would be a liar. And therefore, Christianity would be false. And we can all go home now. Or perhaps we're even trying to deceive or fool Him. But what's He asking us and of us? One thing we can be sure of, He's not trying to trick us. Rather, He wants to change us through His Word and by His Spirit to be more like Him and not like the scribes. And to empower us by His Spirit to do His will, whatever the cost, and know the truth of His Word and to put it into practice and get rid of any hypocrisy that we might have in our lives. Do you need help with that? Do you need to get into a Bible study group? Well, talk to Ken or Ben after the service. You see, you and I probably have little idea how much deep truth the Psalms actually contain. No part of the Bible is better known in the letter, so to speak, and so little understood in the Spirit. If we suppose that the Psalms are nothing but a record of David's feelings or experiences or his praises and prayers, then we're greatly mistaken. Now, please don't mishear me. They are that, and the hand that held the pen, so to speak, was generally David's. But the subject matter was often far deeper and far higher than just a history of King David. The Psalms, in short, is a book full of Christ. Christ's suffering, Christ in humiliation, Christ dying, Christ rising again, Christ coming again, Christ reigning over everyone. Those latter two particularly in Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is full of Christ. The Bible tells us so as Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Both advents or comings of Jesus are there. The coming in suffering to bear the cross. The coming in power to wear the crown. And both kingdoms are there. The kingdom of grace during which the elect, which doesn't refer to elected MPs, but rather to God's chosen, 
or those who've been rescued by grace through faith in Christ are gathered. In other words, this time now, and also the kingdom of glory. So let's always say to ourselves as we read the Psalms, one greater than David is here. And indeed, Christ is on every page of the Old Testament. Jesus himself says so on the road to Emmaus later on in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24 and verse 27. And Jesus wants us to see that the Messiah wasn't David's son in the petty sense of defeating Israel's foes and bringing in the new kingdom of David. No, Jesus wants us to see that he is Lord, as Psalm 110 does. Lord of people's hearts and lives. To call him Lord meaningfully is to see him as greater by far than merely another David. The scribes didn't get it. Do you? Do you submit to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you submitting him to him as Lord in every aspect of your life? Jesus is Lord. He is Lord and God. And he's the demanding Lord as well as the loving Lord. He demands our all. He wants us to totally serve him in every area of our life. He wants us to hold no area back. There's a story of a man in Haiti who wanted to sell his house for 1,000 pounds. Another man wanted very badly to buy it. But because he was so poor, he couldn't afford the full price. After much bargaining, the owner agreed to sell the house for half the original price, with just one condition. <clears throat> he would retain ownership of one small nail located just over the front door. After several years, the original owner wanted the house back, but the new owner was unwilling to sell. So the first owner went out, found the carcass of a dead dog, and hung it from that single nail he still owned. And soon it became impossible to live there, and the family were forced to sell the house to the owner of that nail. What's the point of that story? It's that if we don't surrender all of our life to the control of King Jesus, if we give him all but one small nail, then Satan will hang his rotting garbage on it and make us unfit for Christ. If Christ is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Which brings us to my second point, Christ hates hypocrisy. Notice how ab absolutely abominable hypocrisy is to Jesus. 
Politicians' hypocrisy doesn't go down well with the electorate, although we often tolerate it. But Christ hates it. He hates hypocrisy. Look at verses 45 to 47. And he especially hates it, as we see here in religious leaders. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This was a very bold and severe warning. Indeed, it was a public condemnation of men who were publicly behaving badly. A public denunciation of men, remember, who sat in Moses' seat. In other words, they wanted to be the leaders of Israel, as Moses was. And they wanted to be the recognized teachers of the Jewish people. Yet they couldn't answer Jesus' basic question about Psalm 110. And neither did they live godly lives. They couldn't interpret the Scriptures correctly, nor did they even attempt to live them out as God intended. Rather, they twisted them for their own ends. Doesn't that sound familiar regarding some leaders today? So what does Jesus' reaction say to us in 2019? Well, it teaches very clearly that there may be times when the sins of people in high places make it a positive duty to protest publicly against them. You see, the scribes loved, absolutely loved, to shine before people. But they were very careless of how they appeared before God. And we too can fall into that trap. Although their robes were a sign of distinction, they marked the wearers as gentlemen of leisure. For anyone who worked for a living wouldn't be weighed down with such clothing. Public greetings and high places in synagogues and feasts were further showy marks of status and glory coveted eagerly by the scribes. And it got worse. They devoured widows' houses. The widows were the most defenseless group of Jesus' day. The scribes weren't allowed to charge for their teaching, but there was nothing to stop people making gifts to them. So according to Jesus here, some of the scribes exploited these vulnerable women. They would encourage impressionable widows to make gifts beyond their means and charge them extortionate commissions for handling their finances. Church leaders today, churches today, should be caring for the vulnerable rather than exploiting them. 
And yet today, churches such as prosperity gospel churches still exploit. And others do nothing. The scribes' hypocrisy also extended to their own public prayer lives. Their prayers featured length rather than depth. They gave the illusion of piety, of a great relationship with God. But as their prayers were offered in pretense, they were of no use before God. Perhaps in reality, some of us are a bit like the scribes in our prayers and in our lifestyle. Our faith is all outward show, but it's not real. It's just an illusion. If so, this passage is telling us to wake up and turn to Christ, to cling to Him and His cross and obey His word. No sin seems to be thought of by Christ as being more sinful than hypocrisy. None drew from him such withering condemnation during his whole ministry. He was always full of mercy and compassion for what people, for who people thought were the worst sinners. He wasn't angry when he saw Zacchaeus or the penitent thief dying next to him on the cross, or Matthew the tax collector, or Saul who killed Christians, or the woman in Simon's house back in Luke chapter 7. But when he saw the teachers of the law and the Pharisees wearing a mere cloak of religion and pretending a great outer holiness while their hearts were really full of wickedness. He was full of indignation. Eight times back in Matthew chapter 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! Which brings us to my third and final point. There will be degrees of condemnation in hell. What a way to end your sermon, Jonathan, you say. Well, lastly, this passage teaches that there will be degrees of condemnation and misery in hell. Jesus' words are clear. He says this about those who live and die as thorough hypocrites. They will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 47. Now these words open up a deeply painful subject. The reality and eternity of future punishment in hell for those who don't accept Christ. They will get what they want. An eternity without God. And these are among the basic truths of what Jesus teaches in the New Testament. It's hard to think about such truths without shuddering. But it's important to have all that the Bible says about heaven and hell firmly fixed 
in our minds. The Bible teaches that there will be degrees of glory in heaven. It also teaches that there will be degrees of condemnation and misery in hell. So who, after all, are those who will finally receive condemnation? This is the point that concerns us the most. All who won't come to Christ. All who don't obey the gospel of Christ. All who refuse to repent and persist in wickedness. All such will be finally condemned. They will reap what they have sown. So we need to pray for those who we're aware of in danger. Now please, please, please understand. God doesn't want their eternal ruin. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Rather, he wants everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. It's why he gave up his only son. But if people won't listen to his voice, they will die in their sins. And sin must be punished. It can't just be swept under the carpet. So it is a just judgment. God is just as well as love. And God is a perfect judge. He doesn't make mistakes in his justice, in his judgment. But who among those who are condemned will receive the heaviest condemnation? What does our passage say? Well, it appears that it won't fall on those who never heard the truth. It won't fall on those for whose souls no one cared. But according to Jesus... It will fall on those who had great light and knowledge but made no proper use of it. I think of my lecturer at Newcastle Uni all those years ago. And he's still teaching the same things today. He's in danger. It will fall on those who professed great holiness and religiosity, but who in reality clung to their sins. The unrepentant hypocrite will have the lowest place in hell. They will receive the greater condemnation. These are all awful to contemplate. Whether those who are sadly but justly condemned to hell receive condemnation or the greater condemnation. But they're true. We need to examine ourselves this Advent. 
Are we really just unrepentant hypocrites who are simply pretending to follow Jesus and looking for flattery and ways to exploit people? Or are we genuine, repentant believers? If you're really the former, then let this passage be a loving and severe warning to you. But there's still time to turn to Christ in repentance and faith and enjoy eternity with Him. And if you're already genuinely trusting in Christ, then be humbly grateful for His amazing rescue of you from condemnation and for His glory. Let's pray together. And let's uh, spend a moment in quiet prayer coming to God ourselves and responding to this passage. Amen.